Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. I'm Nico Gallagher. In today's episode, a live recording of a reading from Michael Farrell's most recent poetry collection, Family Trees. In this collection, Michael Farrell continues to question how humans relate to each other and to the non-human, the worlds of animals, plants and objects. Inheritance can be a heavy legacy, but in Farrell's expansive rendering, it frees itself. How do we connect? Through affection and through sharing, swapping and listening. Michael was interviewed by me at the Readings Carlton store. I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone. Uh, Welcome to Readings Carlton. Uh, My name is Nico. I'm one of the events team and a bookseller here at Readings. Uh, And I'm very glad to have you all here tonight. It's really great that we're able to do events back in person in the real world after so long shuttered away in our own homes on Zoom. Before we get going tonight, um, I should point out that while we are able to come back into the real world and enjoy these spaces together at last, we are gathered here today uh, on country that is stolen land. It's unceded country. We're here on the Kulin Nation in the lands of the Wurundjeri people. And I feel an obligation, but also deep want and desire to say that I'd like to pay my respects to the people of this country and of their elders of the past and the present and emerging, people who have connection to land, to country, to waters and to ceremony beyond me. And I hope that if there are any people who are of Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander origin here tonight, I hope you feel welcome and acknowledged and recognised. And I'm very happy to be able to welcome here to readings the poet, writer, and editor, Michael Farrell. Abstraction. Tune into the valley, blue tree. Chords fly up into its cardboard branches. These things had been real just a moment ago but now we were feeling something different. Delicious like an afternoon onion, autumn's onion. The blue skin between the teeth. My tooth had been real and now it hurt. It hung from a faded surface shirt. It fell out in the fruit of a dangerous noon while everything was ripening slowly in the cool. A palm fell across the road and the shadow of the tree fell on the beach and spread towards the Gold Coast customs. Water fell out of the leaves and into a machine and the conversation became a cutout. We were wearing suits and you said that you felt primitive, reading an old book with X-ray vision. That's what the romantics did in stormy weather and made hay and made hay and listened to God on the radio because the waves were stronger then. There was nothing to take the weight of the cove, the heavy sun. An old camel with a star on its back, parked behind a tea factory, the guards playing two up, listening to ABBA like it was Christmas. I brought you a Sunday, but somehow the cherry fell off and that was the end of trust between us and between me and the road, quite frankly. Chunks of ice in the apple, 
a way of seeing the world that made others back away, smiling and tilting their heads. Sydney became based there like an experiment of doubling and became fascinated with its own bays and was like to fall in, drowning its libraries, their barrels of dictionaries. I camped underneath a statue of Henry Lawson and noted how its head bifurcated the sky and did not think it a coincidence. A movie started playing and we asked if we had caused this. We're so used to it. We would think everything was a cheap set if we went back to the past. There are so many countries in the Northern Hemisphere that they spend all their time counting them and putting the numbers in books and saying of the books, look how many countries are in the books. An emu is shying around the pavlova. How did it get there and when? We dressed in cameras from that moment on. A long letter came on ship for the governor, but it got wet and some tore off. It was eaten by a dog and anyway, it was only orders on how to run the country and what styles of painting to encourage and how to manipulate dinner parties and very tonally off-putting too. The governor decided to quarantine the ship. Yet when he woke up, there were traces of blue ink on his face or else his veins had come up out of his cheeks and nose and tongue. And they photographed him like that and the newspaper said, this is how we must live. We make a dirty joke and look up at the moon, blacked out by peacocks flying in from the tea factory and we think of the pools of boiling water awaiting them. Do you have a knife? It has a wooden blade and a metal handle and it sits in the museum like this. Each idea different from the last, each dancer straining to understand what it meant to be between gravity and the land the gravity wanting to get to the next planet. The poem was similar to one from Japan without the same import or ending. A peacock proud of its shirt, stolen from a line. The shutters blocked out some of the noise from the government messengers, yet also misdirected our valentines. Everything that had seemed to turn on a pin reflected another pin somewhere else. And when the neighbours began to complain about the possums, I put my head into the mailbox and kept it there. When they died, the, d the they that used to be us and our survivors went through our hard drives and everything else for a greater sense of what we had been, there were many tantalising clues and skeletons of tiny creatures that might have been our avatars, but the expense of forensics was prohibitive, so mostly they surmised we had been born in a game and had more or less stayed near each other fabricating a long exchange that might or might not have been useful for them if knowledge had stayed the same a bit longer. In the garden, a kind of play. In the palm tree, a kind of bear. A bear whose image adorned a petrol station or donut franchise, but had never been real and perhaps served as a double for someone else who hadn't been either. The emu pecking on the piano, a song that meant as bad as it sounded. The troopers were on the way that the squatter was collecting rents. We divided up some of the pretexts for the beginning of the world and sold some and sewed some into our pockets and carefully hit the road. We divided up too some of the pretexts for the ending of the world and sold some and chewed some into tiny bits of tobacco and carefully hit the sky, rending the clouds on our way through.
Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Um, that's one of my favourite poems from this collection. Um, Michael is reading from Family Trees, his most recent book out through Giramondo. Um, we have this one here tonight as well as previous volume, I Love Poetry, and another one that Michael edited, Ashbury Falls, which I believe you said was an American production? Uh, yeah, Hawaii, still America. Very cool. But Sort of. <laughs> I believe you have some more to read for us. Yes. Well, without further ado, I'll leave... You're all here for Michael, not for me, so I'll let Michael take over. It's good to have a mini rest. Adjectival, or the English canon. The following history isn't particularly edifying or pretty. Depending on perspective, if floating high above the action, popping eyes, running veins, might appear effusions of life. To be martyr for poetry is the highest a poet can aspire. Agnostic or Catholic, whether inclined to think that canons, metaphorically or literally, substitute for afterlives, Greek or biblically stratified, all aim ultimately to be crucified. We shouldn't be so hard to achieve except for this rub. Each candidate for Godhead must attract a worthy assassin. Earliest details are patchy. The list could still be shaken up by the discovery of new archives or mass graves to excite the industry and literary types who love a lurid biography. But I must get on or impatient readers will turn to TV, which churns even Persia and Scotland into plot and talk. Our lineup begins with a well-known droll Canterburyan, first English poet come deity, AKA bloody Geoffrey Chaucer, reckons some quasi-French proto-troubadour took offence, beat his head with a pike, yet local spoken word are as likely. Bloody Thomas Wyatt had not been born, so he'd no boast, Yet somebody thought his verse worth exalting, post-breath. Probably Henry VIII, he adored his wife's poems to death. Poetic murder mystery popularizer, bloody John Skelton. He got the whole court intrigued, including Philip Sidney. Philip invited John to his stables, then had its roof collapse. He might have made a career of it if his life had stretched a bit, but was still perfecting his tale of the squashing of J.S. when it accidentally suffocated at a house party, playing sardines. Bloody Edmund Spencer would have had and enjoyed the job. Possibly his fairy queen even suggested it one tete-a-tete. Walter Raleigh sent him a get-well spud in the mail from jail. Raleigh was the next to go from a bad head cold, so I'm told. The royal cats love Sir Walt, sang along in his demise song. Bloody Thomas Campion bored the cats, but who killed him? Fook Greville, the gay baron, according to servant gossip. Astrologically blessed in his birth date, he can wear the debit. Strong opponent of marriage by royal poets, he died of a flu. Christopher Marlowe was a cute and early adapter of TB. Shakespeare would have done him in given half a chance. No apotheosis for Marlowe, though a credible angel. I when bloody William Shakespeare got the whole world into verse, eventually had his throat cut by bloody Benjamin Johnson. Johnson then proclaimed Shakespeare's spirit had entered him. Bloody John Dunn did for Ben, of course, as is well known. Strung a wire by his lane one night when Johnson was drunk. Half took his head off. Dunn was said to regret the bad job. Bloody George Herbert, as he was known from then on, treacherously invited Dunn to a haymarket intersection with a prod of the cane into traffic. He never breathed again. A tough assignment, bloody John Milton confided in writing, squashing Herbert like a flea or a jonquil with a stone mallet. 
That is the irony of the times and of being Milton, he thought. Bloody Andy Marvel, my favourite of the whole bloody lot, was well-named and could have taken out Wimbledon also. He put J.M. among the stars after Charles II put out his eyes. Marvel killed with a pillow, but no decorous death for him. Bloody John Wilmot preferred a dramatically bloody show, predictably, mowing Marvel to death. Juliana was suspected. Wilmot, aka Rochester, was known for his aversion to labour, also for his taste in German shepherds, but that is by the by. Bloody John Dryden poisoned him with cyanide in his rye. Make me godly, but not yet, bloody William Cowper, he said. Cowper put a hole in Dryden's dinghy one fatal hot summer. Bummer, said he, who had no anxiety about its eventuality. Bloody Alex Hope rather revelled in booting Bill Cowper off his mortal coil and into the literary history curriculum. Apotheosis for that religious ninny local pub critic scoffed. Bloody boy did for Pope by choking him with a bell rope. Bloody Thomas Chatterton was well keen on this cannon lark, strung him up to test his prosody up close and fucking far up. Lucky he didn't get splattered by Pope, which wouldn't count. Out of bloody Christopher Smart was clear-hated enough. Caught on the pantheon for action, got an arrow in the throat. Bloody Thomas Gray off smart on a daring impulse, dropping around with a new ode, he found him in his bath. CS was found there later, fully clothed, stone cold, beaming. Gray, like most poets, a slippery character, ate his own razor. Bloody Samuel Johnson wrote all about it in an expose, Lives of the Poets, was Agatha Christie's bedtime reading. Johnson famous for the remark after me the dribble waited, bloody William Bake set fire to Johnson in the main street. Tiger Burns bright writer, as one headline cried so much, for the dribble aid Johnson Blake would mutter, indeed reiterated bloody William Wordsworth, utter chaff, WW invited Blake to a picnic and Blake stumbled off a cliff. While Whit William got the credits, some say that Dorothy did it. Dorothy liked to quote Lady Macbeth casually to guess, bloody Samuel T. Coleridge finally taking her broad hint, planting it all in the lime tree bower one broody afternoon, dropped a rock on W's head. How sublime, they both said. Bloody George Lord Byron gave Coleridge a rabbit chop. So many men to kill so few centuries, you might well think. There's more to go too, like bloody Perse, Percy Bish Shelley. E.G. Shelley didn't believe in this divine poet malarkey, of course, yet... Bloody Byron did get on his nerves from time to time, rabbiting on about honour, etc. Shelley took his breastplate, thinking to decorate the ship's cabin, then drowned at sea. Bloody John Clare was not mad, but rather a time traveller. He was a wizard with a long scarf he'd knitted himself. Conjuring winds, he sang Shelley's ship from the madhouse. Bloody John Keats was at a loss, spending many days loafing, thinking about how to revenge Percy and become a god too. Finally, he wrote to Clare, enclosing a coughed-on hanky. Who would be fated to end the pain of the Sparrow Keats? Who else but bloody Emily Bronte clomping on a walk? Of all the killings in his history, perhaps the kindest meant. Bloody Thomas Lovell Beddoes staged a makeshift tragedy, Polonius to her Hamlet. He stabbed her from behind a blind. Charlotte was impressed by Emily's realistic death scene. Seizing her chance, bloody Elizabeth Bloody B. Browning dripped her way into the cannon with TLB's severed head. Robert wasn't impressed with what that did to the carpet. Statistically, it's likely he had something to do with her death. Officially, it was bloody Dante, bloody G.B. Rossetti, who filled her coke, cloak hood with bees on learning of her allergies. Poignantly, Rossetti himself died of chalk dust asphyxiation. Bloody Matthew Arnold made him write out a million times. I must not murder poets on a bet, not even while in Italy. Imagine how his wrist ached and imagine Arnold's own end, apparently done in by bloody Jared Manley Hopkins. Death by anchor while minding his own business on a beach. 
Hopkins heaved it at him in a vision of Arnold as Antichrist. That's what the Daily Mail said late, eight years later anyway. Bloody Christina Rossetti made a special trip to Dublin, putting paid to the morbid non-appreciator with a cricket bat upside GMH's head and she might have been on the pitch still if bloody Robert Browning hadn't shot her to join the game. He wanted to be last for the century, to be the Browning era. He'd forgotten the bloody white rabbit late to the party, smothered by fur in the afternoon sun, he never woke up. Charles L. Dodgson, better known as Bloody Lewis Carroll, dead of exhaustion running late for the Pantheon 905, Bloody Algernon Swinburne, driving a deadly brakeless train, his own death inaugurating the bloody 20th century. We've heard too much of it. Picture adjectival Wilfred Owen, bona fide snuffer out of Germans in a field of bloody poets. Thanks, Michael. I'll let you have a sip and a, a moment's pause after that epic poem. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anyone approach the canon with as much irreverence but as much detail about their, their grisly goings-on. Um, yeah, it's not so well known. <laughs> I think um, I certainly could have used that, you know, when I was a child learning about the classics and the greats. I think it would have made it a lot more enjoyable and less dry. Um, We'll have to get that in the school system, I reckon. Um, and the English school system. Yeah, definitely. They need a wake-up call. Um, <laughs> would you like to read another? Uh, yeah. Greta and the Cream. Greta watered the succulents with an old Voss bottle she'd picked up at an airport. She thought of the man she'd met in the cafe while waiting for a delayed flight. He was Russian, spoke... Spanish and English, and in fact translated Latin American authors into Russian. He talked about his holiday. He had been in Dublin for the first time and coincidentally had met another Australian there, a psychologist called Sean. Sean was interested in Russian fiction, Latin American fiction, and after midnight in the black door would tell Pieter the plots of the novels he'd read. Pieter, of course, knew his national classics, but he didn't read contemporary novels. The books he translated were generally related to music and dance. He doubted sometimes whether Sean was relating the narratives from memory or making them up. There was one about two sisters in love with the same man. Eventually the man leaves town. Later he finds out they're raising a child together, but they refuse to tell him which is the mother. He leaves his son from another relationship with them overnight and then falls into a ravine. Peter had said to Greta that he had the insight, that's a word he'd used, that there might be a national or at least cultural way of reading stories that made everything you read, or at least everything you remembered, that meant something to you, a story from your culture. Greta said, perhaps you heard these stories as Australian because Sean was telling them. But what she guessed, and she assumed Peter had considered this possibility also, was that what Sean was actually doing was fictionalising the stories of his patients, relieving the pressure of keeping them secret, but without technically breaking confidentiality. Sean had been an only child and had, he told Peter, staged performances for his parents of the psychoanalysis of his toys and the family cats doing all the voices himself. Sean told him that he had once reduced his parents to tears telling the pathetic story of a kitten left at the tip. Peter admitted that Sean had a mesmerising tone and had thought at the time that Sean could probably get him to do anything, like buy all the drinks, simply by asking him to do so. As Greta remembered it, or was that because of an email Peter had sent later, 
The holiday seemed to go on for years, with Sean beginning to repeat the stories about finding his father in the ravine and the crows telling him to say nothing. And when he went back the next day, there was no body in just a chest set on a rock and an instruction to close his eyes for one minute between each move. Cannily, the pieces on the board would move in that time and it seemed likely that he was playing the crows. Greta drank from the Voss bottle, feeling upset by the memories but unsure why. She had left the cream on the table and her cat Fargo was guarding it. It's just you and me, kiddo, she said. No one else wants it. Despite being emotional, just as Peter had been over the days they had spent at the airport together, admittedly some of that time in bed at an airport hotel, she had felt temporarily healed as if Sean's effect on people, even secondhand, was therapeutic. She had imagined him asking his parents' patients to sign releases on their stories or a form of... That was quite a Freudian slip, really. Asking your parents to sign releases um, or a form of copyright for therapists. Peter had said, there was a story about why in the end Sean had decided against psychoanalysis that allowed them to repeat what they heard for the benefit of others only, not for profit. She'd become Peter and Sean, she felt, not constantly and perhaps not permanently, but as she read a few pages of Shklovsky aloud for its effect on Fargo, she remembered the Colombian sisters that she had met at university who said they had some kind of benefactor. Well, the world was full of sisters, she thought. She had one herself who was happily married and played in a death metal band and voted Labor and only read memoir and tweeted violently all day long. She imagined that Sean was knocking firmly at the door. She opened it calmly, cream in hand. Thanks, Michael. I think that one, um, there's a poignancy there that I feel like is um, refreshing after the previous one. But, you know, they all have their own strengths. <laughs> Even despite the Freudian slips and the, the psychoanalysis. More poignant than a Freudian slip. Yeah, true. You know, that's a good point. I see you have another one prepared, ready to go. Yeah. Um, speaking of Freud. Hamlet in the mind of a country school teacher. Adani killed my father. These words were in Adam's head when he woke up, but he was unable to remember any dream they were part of. It was still daylight. He'd been having a nap between class and the performance, starting at eight. He walked to the theatre, thinking about the play, went inside. It was filthy and a smell of gas from the leaky radiator. He arrived early, so he sat up the back, thinking to move closer when others began to arrive. Hamlet's problem, he thought, was that the only truths he had to express were ones that no one, least of all himself, wanted to hear. Last time he'd been here was for a school production of a Midsummer Night's Dream. He populated the empty stage with kids crawling over the set and each other in green. It emphasised an ecological theme, according to the program, written by Nadia, the drama teacher. Each of the children's different roles complemented the others. Yet to Adam, I am an English teacher, after all, he said to himself, in an aside, the children seemed more like an alphabet than an ecosystem, forming different letters and words as they moved across the stage and up and down different levels of the forest by vine. He'd lost concentration and forgot about the plot. He was still vague about it. Unlike tonight's play, which he knew pretty well and which would be performed by a touring professional company of recognisable actors. 
The blue shadow reminded him of his father. A ghost rehearsing in the town theatre this bright summer evening. No, there was no sign of the cast. Could it be gas, and in any case, his father was still alive and not a miner, but an accountant. What could he or Hamlet do to stop the earth spinning to perdition? Pear trees grew, tree ferns too, rainforests with child-sized snake in them, snakes in them, forming S's and I's and L's. Be careful in the quiet. Nadia sat next to him, but it was already looking at her phone, so he didn't zone in, only relatively, taking in his surroundings. Yes, he had chosen the worst seat for comfort and view, so he could take that on as a martyr. He'd meant to move now, move, but now he'd have to explain to Nadia. He was sure there were mice droppings on the floor. He remembered being at the pub the day before, listening to the pear farmers arguing about the Fortinbra mine and the likely, and the likely, and the likely effect on them and their remedy for anger, a night spotlighting. They sounded straight out of Aristotle, or rather like the version of catharsis argued against by Aristotle's critics. He spotted one or two of them now, looking and smelling better than they did at the pub, except the pub was a posher venue by far. The poster had suggested they were in for a sexy night of TV stars, half-clad and mournful, sponsored by a bank that must be trying to look good too. The sponsorship gave Adam a bad feeling, but he thought that on the whole he had to side with thinking, and a play about thinking, however compromising the night, or how it ended, unseasonable weather predicted. You are the English teacher after all, as Nadi had said in the staff room that afternoon. Thank you very much. Michael, how are you feeling? Would you like to continue reading or would you like to take a break and, and ponder instead? Um, I have some new poems in my pocket, but if you wanted to... I think, I think having a, a premiere would be fantastic, if you'd be willing. Lunch on the grass. I'm naked but otherwise legal, sitting on the grass with Jay and Adam. I've just smoked a doobie for the last time, but I don't know that yet. We're eating ribbon sandwiches from Alimentari in Carlton Gardens. I'm feeling edgy and not that good edgy related to orgasm, nor that middle-class edgy that comes from transgressing your own decorum. I speculate merely. I speculate like a good sex worker in a Dutch window. I've lost my phone in the grass, but I don't know that yet. Jay and Adam are elongated thumbnails, virtual ciphers, but they're wonderful company at the time, up to a point. Has that point been reached? Jay chews, animating their moustache. Adam yawns while drinking wine, alas for his white doublet. Alas for his goblet too, but it doesn't know that yet. Adam grew the grass. Adam works for the council. Jay is a food taster for the king in a relatively safe age. He knows his ribbon sandwiches. He knows his spatchcock. Spatchcock is Jay's mot du jour, a little game he plays on days like these languorous legal days in Carlton Gardens where I have accepted my body and let go of decades of relative beauty, a moment, moment of which includes being a life model, another a model for bigger cheese. Jay smears Vegemite on my thigh and it doesn't irritate me a bit. <laughs> yes, it is warm if you're wondering. Love is on my mind, wherever that is. Wombat's shit candy. 
To avoid treading on a snake, I stepped on a landmine. Did this really happen in my dream? No. Is it a fiction? Yes and no. The time I spent looking for socks is insignificant. Lie, irony or philosophy? Wombats, shit candy. Joke, hallucination. This, I would say, is a fact, a truth claim. My poems are litanies of truth claims. Is that where we are then, sis, in a poem? And if so, narrated, spoken, by whom? The witch of Hebron, Saint Commonwealth Bank. I just call her auntie. That's my affectionate nature. To improve substantially, a patient must be well enough to realise that it is up to themselves. That, that is the candy in the bed. Also the end of candy in the bed. Candy, lollies to you, must be reframed as making the bed. How sweet, you will say, as if, as if sucking on a sheet or one of my socks. Well, you never know how queer a poem will go on you, like a virtual lover or a cow with trauma. What a chatty tone. It's like staying up all night in Rome with Jahan and Roberto and finally letting my guard down, or taking speed and getting fleas as I came down. Ultra-rare episodes in a life of work. CF, short for the Latin, confer, conferreter, both meaning compare. Roland Bart, who trumps wild here. Bart's is hardly chatty. For an exemplar on surviving work, life even, see neither, but rather Juan Ramon Jimenez. In his work on the poetics of work, he urges us to live one hour at a time. Who among us, he argues, can seize moment after moment, or a day, without ending up on the couch like Oscar Wilde and with less to show for it? My adolescent prose style was rather too replete with dashes, circled in red by Miss Hunt, yet surviving in my PhD thesis, as pointed out in black by Professor Gelder. I try to keep a rein on rhetorical questions too, like or unlike a horse colliding with Gustav Klimt's The Kiss. That's ekphrasis. There was a bad smell in my flat yesterday and eventually I found I had some patriarchy on my shoe. A metaphor and or punchline. I think this will be the, this will be the end. Young marmalade, small Baudelaire and parsley. Some days I can't tell the difference between parsley and coriander and I have to pinch a leaf between my fingers to tell. Some mornings I think I'm doing plank, but I'm actually doing an abdominal stretch. There's not, I think, enough made of the distinction between looking and looking for. The upside is finding a sock by feeling it hit my body. One of the pleasures of using a new form is beginning to think in it. French poets were more like to, likely to write prose poems than English ones. Their Alexandrines were already approaching the page's right margin. But there are still the exceptions of Philip Sidney and Andrew Marvell. Their Arcadia and the rehearsal transposed are worth checking. Suformal, more fully suformal trifle, is a character in a play by Thomas Shadwell, The Virtuosos, where this florid orator tries to rape a man he thinks is a woman. The play is satirised by John Dryden. If I don't forget, I learn a bit of Czech on days I'm not learning French. Mladi means young and Mali means small, and I keep confusing them. To help, I invent a mnemonic, young marmalade, small Baudelaire. I imagine a character in a comic sketch trying to buy young marmalade made of small, unripe oranges chopped with sugarcane, barely heated. 
Small Baudelaire evokes a bust or poet you could drown in a teaspoon. I got that image from Adam Mikovitz's long narrative Pan d'Adieu's. In English, it's a novel. A friend, another Polish Adam, thinks it silly. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Michael. Yeah, fantastic. I'm so glad we were able to have a poetry reading here back in the store after so long, especially such intriguing, special, fantastic, and yeah, just fantastic poetry. I can strongly recommend Michael's most recent collection, uh, Family Trees. I have my extensively marked up copy here with me. Thank you all very, very much for coming through tonight. And again, thank you, Michael. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Nico. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you.